Hello and welcome. I'm your host Craig and this is episode 17 of the Brew and Bite podcast. Goldilocks and the iMac. Sponsored by the London Mac User Group. Coming up over the next hour, we have a fun-packed show as we discuss all the latest new tech from Apple's spring-loaded event, from iMacs to remotes, as well as our Did You Know section. But first up, let's say hello to our panel. Martin, how are you this evening? Oh, good evening, guys. Uh, good evening, Yeah, I'm fine. And next up, we'll say hello to Alistair. I'm fine, thanks. Enjoying the nice sunny weather. And Tina, how are you? Very well. Very well. Tonight, we have a very special guest in that we are joined by another Mac user group, and we will say hello to Robert. How are you? Hello. Yes, I'm. I'm very well, thank you. I'm uh, Robert Williams from uh, Seal. Uh, so we are South Essex Apple Link, and a Mac user group or an Apple user group, I should say. That as uh, yeah, we've been going for uh, quite a few years now. We've got a bit of a history in that we started out many years ago in 1998 as an Amiga group, but uh, we've been an Apple group for quite a few years now. And uh, yeah, we uh, based around Wickford in in Essex, which is near Basildon. Due to COVID, we're meeting uh, twice a month for an online meeting. Uh, we have sort of, you know, informal online meetings. And uh, if anyone's interested in further information, we have a website at uh, seal-apple.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, this week is quite a big show. Hence being, we've just recently seen the Apple Spring Loaded event and it lasted just over an hour, if I'm not mistaken. And boy, was it loaded. It was indeed. Yeah, they definitely packed it in, didn't they? And has anyone made a pre-order yet? No, no. I'm in a quandary, as the saying goes now, with uh, what to buy. I was disappointed that the one thing I really wanted didn't turn up. Yes, I'm a little bit in the same position. I'm definitely in the uh, in the market for a new Mac, as uh, I'm uh, still on a uh, rather antique 2012 Mac Mini. Definitely in the market for a new machine, but... Uh, I'm still uh, still weighing up my options. This brings us nicely onto how do we find our new devices with our new Apple AirTags. Who would like to give their thoughts on them first? Go on, then I'll start the ball rolling. Very long time coming. I think we've seen some of the reasons why they took so long. Some of the issues about the, the workings of the tag, uh, how you can find it, where you can find it. It's taken some working out, some figuring out. I think they did pull it last year. We were expecting this last uh, autumn. I have a feeling that's why the, the Find My App was brought out first to get the start getting the bugs out of that to see how it's going to work because the whole point of with the air tag is not only will it work with apple it should be able to work third-party location devices as well to help you find if they go missing the actual concept i think is quite good the fact that you can buy a 29 pound tag and a 235 pound leather wallet to go put it in key fob sounds just about right for me i'll definitely be ordering half a dozen tags to go onto all my but i think the basic concept is good i will certainly want to have a couple of three for things like i have a site rucksack and end of the day trying to find out where i've left it down or put it down or going searching for it can waste an hour of my time so being able to get the phone out follow the little green arrows where the the, uh, the bag will be will be a big help i was pleased with various things like the fact that the battery's replaceable yeah i was definitely going to mention that as well i thought it looks like it's a fairly easy task and it's also it's a cr2032 isn't it a very common type of uh, button cell that was great i'm sure you'll find that apple will do a really nice packet of four of those batteries for about 29.99 i also liked the fact that they thought about things like stalking so that there would be a way of knowing if someone had put, put one on you so you would be able to recognise that there was an air tag near you that you didn't know about. Because I think that that would be another concern, isn't it? Is if you can track things, you can track people. So that was good. I do feel sorry for Tile though, because they had a really good product, but they've not been allowed to join, is it the ultra-wide band that the um, air tag uses? So I think they're talking to the, some committee in america about antitrust because they're saying they've been locked out of the system and it's anti-competition uh, oh because i was going to say a big advantage that apple have got is obviously they're going to use the uh, find my network aren't they so they've which is made up of effectively all the apple devices that are out there and that's the big advantages isn't it is that you're likely to be able to find your air tagged item in a lot of the world because there are so many apple devices around but i remember watching a few reviews of some of these similar finding item devices and one of the issues is well it's all very well if it's local to you but if it's further away unless you know unless you're in a very densely populated area the likelihood of it being close to another user of that 
particular type of tag is fairly unlikely. And apparently, if you say that something's lost and someone else finds your tag, you can record a message for it and give it, say, your phone number or your email and so that that person can get it back to you. So the the thing I want to know is, is it a privacy setting that was turned on? Because in WWDC, they did mention that the iPhone had to be turned on in privacy settings for the Find My for it to be included in the Apple Tags network. And if it's turned off, then certain phones won't be able to use it. So it's only those who are participating, or they may have changed it. I'm not quite sure if it's going to be changed in 14.5. But if if all the iPhones are turned off by default, you're going to have a much smaller network to find things. Yeah, I think it would be, it would surprise me if it wasn't optional. I was pleased to hear that um, it's all anonymous in that even apple don't know what uh the, you know the locations and uh, what devices have picked up what tags that seems like a good safety feature but i also uh, you were saying earlier about how this has taken a while to come out from a uh testing and verification point of view i could imagine that that the fact that they haven't got all that centralized data meant that they had to do an awful lot of testing to make sure this actually all, all works as it's supposed to yeah, because you could just see some clever researcher reverse engineering it and going from the tag back to the iPhone and finding the iPhone from the tag. So they didn't want someone like the um, FBI asking Apple to start saying, right, you now have the ability to go and find this individual who is now on our most wanted list. The one thing that I found interesting was that if, God forbid, someone does steal your bag and it does have your tag and you don't manage to get it back, you cannot reset the tag. So the tag can't be sold on or it can't be paired to another device. It's actually locked to that Apple ID the same way in which a phone is i think that was a really clever point on their part i like the the nods to the original ipod classics with the shiny chromed back which i thought was a nice little detail one of the things which is great about that shiny back is that you could see it with the sunlight hitting it and you could oh oh it's over there and so i'm just waiting for someone to put it on as a medallion at some point <laughs> yeah that'll be available from hermes next month for 346 pounds that means you haven't come across the airpod earrings in which people have attached two air tags to each one. <laughs> you could never lose your AirPods that way. And I don't know whether you've seen, but on the uh, Find My app now, there's a new uh, section on it for items, and you can identify them as a, a key ring, a bike, uh, a rucksack, uh, and you can add other items to it. So so if the uh, the tags was the hors d'oeuvres, uh, uh, Craig, what was the main cause? Ooh. Well, let's just say, as somebody very famous in Apple once said, they bleed in many colours. We saw the launch of the iMac. What was our first initial thoughts? Reminded me of the original iMacs from when the iMac first came out. Remember, they were all based on the boiled sweets. Well, it was it was typical Apple, wasn't it? A lot of style, a lot of design has gone into it. There's been a few remarks about the larger bezels that's needed and the huge chin that's still uh, on the iMac that still differentiates the, the iMac from some of the competitors out there, that that chin is still in evidence. We saw there that uh, most of the gubbings of the, of the iMac is in that chin. Uh, especially the heat sinks and the heat fans, uh, the speaker positions and items like that. So I can see the justification for it. But then when you saw the new iPads that come out, which are basically uh, the same thing, aren't they? Uh, same sort of thickness, smaller, but they still retain all the gubbins actually behind the screen. So there's an issue there about, which I would presume is to do with the thermal cooling uh, required for the screen rather than the actual chip. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to hear those uh, iMacs in person. I mean, they certainly, they made it seem as if the, uh, you know, the sound is really quite sort of impressive and room filling. Modern iPad sound is is not bad, but uh, I would assume it's on a bit of a different level. The thing that surprised me was that the way which they were talking in the keynote was that it was almost like the number one requirement we've had was our iMacs are too wide. Maybe I'm missing something, but I haven't come across many people who said, what I really want is a one centimeter wide iMac. I think most people said what I want is more powerful iMac, one that can do a lot more items on it. So it'll be interesting to see when people actually get the review units to see how powerful 
the iMacs are compared to the M1 Mac Minis, which have exactly the same chip and see which one is going to be more useful because it now leaves you with a quandary. Which one do you go for? The mid-range iMac or the mid-range Mac Mini? They're very similar. They have a few different ports. Mac Mini has HDMI and USB-A. The iMac has a a webcam. It has a nice big screen, but you pay a large amount of money for a big screen in high definition color. And then we have the awkward problem of, is it USB 4 or Thunderbolt or USB-C? They all looks the same to the average consumer, but they all have different names and different functionalities once you plug something in. So in some respects, I think Apple Store are going to have a few more confused customers initially when it first comes out. What would be interesting, though, isn't it, is if they did a display that you could buy and that that had a webcam in it, a lot of people would go straight to the Mac Mini. I certainly know that when I first got a Mac computer, I had a Mac Mini, and I had loads of issues trying to sort out a webcam. And for a lot of people, the webcam now is is almost essential. So I can see a lot of people liking things with the built-in webcam. Yeah, we did get the 1080p upgrade for the webcam. That kind of had to come along the line. The one thing that I liked was the fact that they've removed the power module and put it into its own little block. Now, I think Alistair's got some explanation of they're actually different depending on which model you pick. If you've looked at the power adapters, you only will find the 1,400 and the 1,600 pound models have the Ethernet connection built into the power supply, whereas the low-end entry model, the 1,200 pound model, doesn't. So we're assuming then that the individuals who buy the low-end ones like Wi-Fi, but the thing I was thinking is that if you're trying to push out 4K video, that a Ethernet connection is more required because you're pushing out a huge amount of video because so many people sit behind Zoom. And if you've got this high-end 1080p (laughs) camera, you're going to need something powerful at the other end. So we've gone back to, I think, to what Apple used to call the Goldilocks model, the cheap end, the high end, and just right, which is the one in the middle. So I think my recommendation would be the 1400 model. There are some uh, configuration options as well. Uh, So I think you can get Ethernet on the uh, lower model as a configuration option. But of course, uh, by the time you add that on, maybe you very quickly get to the point where you might as well have got the uh, 1400-pound one. I have a theory behind this one. I think there's actually two reasons why they've done that. One is that now it seems far more common that, yes, we are all working from home and standing desks are becoming a popular thing. So if you're connected via an Ethernet cable in the wall or somewhere in your house, whenever your desk goes up and down, it pulls taut. So they've gone down the theory of being able to put it on one level and the rest of the devices sit on your desk. The other thought I had is it makes manufacturing far easier because they're all becoming a standard block. The MacBook Pro charger block, it just, from a manufacturing point of view, it makes it far easier to make the same component standardized. Well, my thinking behind this is the reason they put it into the power supply was for two reasons. One, If you've looked at an Ethernet cable, it's more than a centimeter long. So if you put it in, it would stick out quite ugly out the back because you wouldn't have enough to hold the pins into the back of the computer. The second thing is that if you put it into power supply, it means you could put a cheaper cable into the, the, the flexi bits till you get to the power brick. And then the power brick could have the heavy duty Ethernet or power over Ethernet cable built into it. So you... That way you could say, okay, if one person's broken the flex, you can sell them that cheaper cable, but the more expensive power brick would change depending on country. So the the Americans have two pin, the the, um, UK have three pins, so it could be something simple like that. Well, I think the other point to consider is that they've brought back the uh, MagSafe onto the back of the cable. So if if you trip over and pull the cable out of the back of the iMac, it's going to come and separate from the machine itself. Now, if you've got an Ethernet cable plugged in as well, unless they can find some way of putting that onto the maglock, which is what they've done by putting it through the power cord, you'd have a second cable which you could trip over. So I think there's a there's an issue there as well that by managing to, to put everything into under the desk into the power plug and then the single cable to the iMac. Clever, actually. I think that, that makes sense. And did you notice that it's Giga Ethernet? So it's not standard 
it's so it's the faster of the Ethernet connections. So that might be an indication of what might be coming out, that you could uh, stay with the update and thus change the power adapter, which is cheaper. So when, in, say, five years' time, your iMac is once a faster Ethernet connection, you just buy another power block rather than buying the whole new cable and the iMac is no longer relevant. So it's a it's sort of slightly future-proofing in a way. I think also it comes back to the issue that I think some companies are moving away from the Wi-Fi only model that they want their uh, uh, their computers plugged back into the network uh, because of bandwidth issues, especially with so many people more using Zoom now. You can see that in an office environment if you have twenty or thirty machines all trying to connect on Zoom all over Wi-Fi, or it's going to cause uh, problems. Whereas uh, a fixed cable will can be that problem can be alleviated uh, back at the server room. I am right in saying that all of the M series and the iPhone all use 82.1ax as the wi-fi standard now the new imac is using 6 and bluetooth 5 so 6 is the new wi-fi system but yes it is using x ax and and that is the same as iphone 12 that makes sense because now we've got five members of the m1 series family in the product lineup the point we were talking about earlier on was i was thinking that uh, i'm in a quandary as to what to buy so the, the Mac Mini, spec for spec, is almost identical to the iMac, with the exception of the extra two ports on it and the webcam. So you're basically paying almost spec for spec £600 extra for a 24-inch screen and an all-in-one build. So is that going to be something that, again, as a consumer model, don't forget, this is what I think this is basically aimed at. People just want to buy a computer in a box, take the box home, unpack it, up and running within five minutes rather than go through the process of, of, of trying to build one yourself. And then on the other side, you've got people maybe like myself who've already got a couple of monitors, who've already got keyboards and mice and all the other paraphernalia. So a Mac Mini would be entirely suitable there for me because it gives me all the power of the new M1 fixed in with all the rest of the kit I've got. So I think there is a bit of a, a decision to be made as to what fits your current system. Are you going to throw it all out for a new iMac? Or is it a mix and match that will give you the options of using? Maybe you have already invested in a large 4K monitor or something like that. So that the Mac Mini there would give you that option. So I think a lot of people are going to find themselves in that decision-making process. What do I go for? Because there's no big difference between the actual performance of the Mac Mini as opposed to an iMac. I think what's going to be interesting is when we get the next chip. Because at the moment, the 27-inch iMac is still an Intel version. Well, it could be that that's going to be the luxury version. So that has M1X or whatever they call it. You've got the 13-inch MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air on M1. Well, then you've got the luxury version of the MacBook Pro 16-inch and 14-inch, allegedly, that would have the next one. They might even have a Mac Mini one with a M1X. Like they've got two sort of strands, the basic, relatively speaking, considering how much you have to pay. And then whatever the next one's going to be. The question would be, would you go down the rather expensive high-end route and buy an XDR £5,000 monitor and connect it to the new iPad Pro? Because that's how Apple sold it this week. No, I don't think I'd go down that route, but I'd certainly be prepared to for £600. I could pay a very decent 4K monitor. I could almost buy a pair of you know, 32-inch curved screen monitors that come in at around about £480, £500 mark. So... I think that gives you the option. Of course, it all comes down to what you're going to use it for. If you're like me, I use it for my, my Archicad uh, software and my Final Cut Pro projects. There I need the, I need the power, I need the screen, I need the size. So that would be what I'd be looking for. I said at the opening, my, my disappointment was that we didn't see a 27-inch iMac. That's what I, what I would have uh, laid my money down on straight away if that had come. But I think that will be an autumn or maybe even quarter one of 22 issue. Is anyone going out to buy the new iPad Pro? It certainly looks uh, looks looks very impressive. I've got a uh, an older, you know, I think probably original model iPad Pro. So it's several years old now. And uh, it, that's one of those things where when I bought it, I didn't really know how much I would use it. And uh, I've found since I've had it, I've used it a great deal. So I'm not really quite ready to replace it, but... Um, you know, I did think that it looked, looked extremely, extremely impressive. And I guess the reason they were showing so much of the XDR display, which is, as we know, thousands of pounds, 
against it was because it has this, um, I believe it's a micro LED backlit uh, display with uh, the Apple are at least touting to be of uh, similar quality to the uh, Pro XDR display. And certainly that does uh, does look uh, very impressive. But I believe that is only on the uh, larger 12.9 inch model, I think. My question would be, if you've got the most recent iPad Pro, is it worth an upgrade? And if so, why? So it sounds like the M1 uh, chip is a significant step ahead, doesn't it, of the of the chip. If you're going for the 11, then I guess it sounds, I think, that, like the screen is probably fairly similar to the previous model. So I suppose it's a lot of it would come down to whether you're doing things that would benefit from the additional performance. So there's a couple of things I don't know if anyone paid attention to it, but if you notice that the previous most expensive iPad Pro was £1,649, now you can spend £2,399 to get the 2 terabyte model, and you the price has increased by £100 from the previous model, and you spend £200 more for the 1 terabyte from the previous one. So everything has gone up for so for exactly the same spec, but just M1 this time, everything's gone up. The iPad has now got more expensive since it's gone to the M series, even if you're not going for the top end two terabyte internal. So if you compare that to a 16 inch MacBook Pro, which is the last Intel one that Apple did, you've now got very similar price for an iPad Pro 12 inch or a 16 inch. Now, for my money, I would go for the 16-inch because you get the bigger display and the bigger processor and you can actually type on it. But they're now competing on it. So I don't know if this is a result of the chip shortage that we're currently getting in China at the moment. And Intel are trying desperately to build American-based chip factories. But it did seem interesting that it's now more expensive to buy an iPad Pro granted it looks very nice and if you are the type of person who's an ipad to store information on because you're a professional photographer and you need to store it that's very useful or if you're the type of person who uses an ipad pro as your only machine the two terabyte now comes in very useful because you can store an awful lot on it rather than have to be dependent on storing everything up in icloud the display could come in quite useful we won't know until the review units come out if it's any more powerful on the performance side. I have a good argument with that. So for the first time, I can actually say the iPad is closer to the Mac than it is the iPhone because it's got the M1 chip. The other thing I was thinking a lot about was I think there's something far better planned from a software point of view because this is the first time ever that we've gone over 4 gig RAM in an iPad. We're now 16 gig. It can support Thunderbolt 4, which suggests a lot of heavy loading or lifting in terms of photography or video editing. So I think they've got a hidden surprise coming with iOS iPad for this one. But I don't know what your thoughts are. I think what's going to be interesting with all of this is for some people now, this iPad plus say a magic keyboard would be the equivalent of a laptop. And I've got an iPad. I read on it. I play stupid games. I don't create on it, but that could change. I think what's going to be the killer for a lot of people, the thing that's going to make them want to upgrade is the app. It's what you can do on it. So if suddenly you're realistically doing, for instance, Photoshop on there, not a cut-down version, but an equivalent version to the MacBook or, you know, a computer, then it'll be like having a high-end tablet at that point photographers would love it you, you would just have it wouldn't you with, with two with the speed and the storage and the ability to do things like lightroom and photoshop lots of levels lots of processing yeah it'd be a no-brainer so i think you're right watch this space it, it it's what comes next because at the moment i wouldn't buy it great can you connect an ipad to a dslr you can do it in two ways so you can do direct download canon were one of the first to have a remote control trigger they also were the first at supporting raw files so you can actually edit raw files on the go which is only available on ipad pro can you do tethering you can and you can do wireless tethering too i've tried that 
on the really early iPads and that kind of worked but I imagine it works a lot better now. A lot of studios would like that wouldn't they? You'd have something portable in front of it, take the picture, see it. The one thing that I think they've done really well is that they've looked in depth at who is actually using the iPad Pro but from a work perspective. So for some of you you know that I like illustration and I draw a lot on the iPad. That is a massive advancement because now you can have images with hundreds, even possibly thousands of layers, which makes drawing a a dream in that respect. The same with Photoshop, as you said, Tina, that would be a massive advantage to do that. I would love for them to put some of their pro apps onto the iPad. I want a final cut. I think it's going to stay on photography. I don't think it's going to go to video, because if you look at everything they've done recently, they put a selfie camera on the front, which is now 12 megapixel. They're talking about having an upgraded version of photos for VR iPad. They're talking about the ability to put 4K video from your iPhone onto the iPad. They're not talking about pro photography. We're not talking about red cameras. We're not talking about high-end stuff. It's all to do with what can you get off your iPhone. But if you've got 16 gig of RAM, if you're talking a Canon R5, maybe not because the files will be massive. But an R6 maybe, some of those semi-professional cameras, they, they do stuff because they'd have enough heft as long as the apps are there. If the right software's there, there will be people that will be doing stuff on there that they'll want. And on a studio, using it as a tethering device, it would be 12.9 inches would be enough for people to, to real, really get a sense of the picture. That's the reason why they put possibly a two terabyte drive in there. Because even though you're saying, it comes back to this consumer issue, uh, even consumers out there with their iPhone 12s and their other iPhones are producing very, very large photographs. Uh, and it would easily swamp uh, some of the older and smaller iPads that were around because just purely because of the memory size. So I can see the point of why they've gone offered you the option of a a very large internal storage so that if you are out on site or out on a shoot, miles from anywhere, miles from power, miles from any kind of internet connection, if you're on a shoot, anything that you don't have to lug around is a big improvement. You've got enough with cameras and lenses and tripods and models who won't walk over cold ground and all that kind of stuff. So having not to have a huge, great, uh, stonky, great uh, MacBook Pro with you uh, and then a, a big battery pack and all that. It all helps in that kind of thing. So it's a funny crossover between what we're considering to be a consumer device into that semi-pro level. The thing that you just brought to mind is how many times have you seen people go around with an iPad as their only camera uh, to a tourist attraction, and they're taking everything on this iPad and they're, they're filming it at ridiculously high speed. So when they get back home, all you'll see is a blur. But they take everything as a picture. And when asked, why were you using an iPad? They said, well, I refuse to buy glasses and I need to see the screen, which is big enough. Uh, and, and it's that sort of idea. The other thing which I was told about, which I haven't actually seen yet, but apparently it's useful. It's very useful for augmented reality. So for when architects and other uh, estate agents are trying to show off a property, they say, well, you may see this concrete show, but if you look at this iPad, you can see this. And I can clearly see somewhere like um, Ikea suddenly bringing these out and saying, okay, this is your green room room. This is the furniture, and then you can start putting stuff in there because AR uses a lot of power. So that could be a quite an easy system. I have a, an application from Dulux where I can take a live picture of a wall and I can change the paint on the walls just in the app and it will change it to whichever colour the, the person's looking at. Uh, and again, that takes some quite some power to do uh, and it struggles a little bit on the, I've got like you, uh, Robert, I've got an old uh, 12.9 original iPad Pro uh, and it's struggling a bit on that. So that, that possibly would be another way to go. So yet another choice I've got to make between an iPad and iPad Pro, it's just getting silly. Thanks, guys. I was just going to say the idea of people using their iPad as their sole photography thing, yeah. And I had a friend that went to the Great Wall of China and all she had with her was an iPad because I was just thinking, you're going somewhere that's epic and you're going to take pictures on that. And we had long discussions on it. And she said to me, not about the display and being able to see it because, you know, her eyes were good enough. She said, I'm only ever going to look at it on an iPad, so I don't need the quality. But I think it does come back to... We have to consider what the modern way of things are. People look at photographs on their iPhone 
or possibly uh, a screen. The days of getting the projector out and sticking a great big 42-inch screen up on the wall and boring everyone to death for two hours with your hollow photos from China are long, long gone. The problem about that is I can see that that's true, but the time may come in the future when you will be projecting pictures on your wall and it would be nice to have the detail in your photos to go back retrospectively and bore all your friends with your China pictures. So, yeah, I can see what my friend's saying, but I don't agree with it. If the detail is there, then you can always, when, when things change, you can go back and look at them again. So according, allegedly, is it Lightroom? They've got something that does super detail, which would be interesting, super definition. So I suppose there might be a software solution, but it's easier if you got the detail to start with you, you obviously haven't seen the new photoshop which has got exactly that in the app it's got an enhanced ability for to increase the pixel count uh, and it can practically turn it into four times whatever pixel count you've got it's a very impressive part of photoshop now topaz do one as well topaz that's your alternative you said about the pro uh, apps going over to the ipad and of course the one for me is final cut pro uh, are apple actually going to convert two options are they going to produce a ios version of final cut pro or will they eventually turn the ipad into being able to read os apps uh, someone pointed out the fact that there is a pretty good one on the on the market really called luma fusion i've had a quick look at it and yes it's very impressive it does an awful lot but there's certain things that uh, it lacks that final cut pro does that it's it's just not going to touch but for for creating consumer grade videos it's almost perfect on an ipad it's interesting you say that martin because i've used LumaFusion for numerous different things you can actually get plugins for them that are based on the ipad so fairright the podcasting app for editing there is third-party apps that you download and it installs a plugin into their app so it's not necessarily an app that you open up and use it it just embeds another feature into that. LumaFusion have got add-ons. So if you're looking for like transitions and different types of sound or audio adjustments, they also make another app that actually adds those features on. I think it's about £5, but it's worth a look. Shall we talk about the Apple TV? Who was pleased there's a new remote? Because to be honest, I think they've gone backwards, but that's my opinion. But we'll come to that. Go for it, Robert. You're on the edge of your seat there waiting. <laughs> I've not got an Apple TV myself, so I only have sort of secondhand. I know a couple of people who do, and I've uh, so I think I'm probably in the worst position in that I've attempted to use the Apple TV remote on a few occasions, but never enough to really get used to it at all. So I've definitely found it a bit a bit tricky. So uh, I suspect there are some advantages to it, but um, as somebody who's not had a lot of experience with it, it definitely did not feel immediately intuitive to me. So I guess I was pleased to see that there was the new remote. I did think the way they described it in that the directional pad is, is also a touch surface and you can so you can still swipe you can run your finger around the uh the circle to uh adjust the volume and things i thought it did seem like maybe that is uh kind of a good compromise i'd be interested to hear what you guys who maybe have used it in more in anger feel about it but when they talked about the remote the first thing it made me think of when they were talking about the scrolling round with the finger ipod classic i'm sorry it, it's worth it just for that as a power user of the apple tv remote it's it's the first thing in my hand to turn on the apple tv and then i put that down and get my phone out and use the remote app on the phone to do all i need to do so yeah i don't think it's anywhere near as bad as people make out a typical steve jobs-esque uh, design feature keep it simple keep it minimal instead of having 4001 different buttons on the sky remote that we have but i can never remember which they are and i can never find them in the dark it serves its proper purpose the new one has got some added features i think they've tried to to address some of the issues but for me personally as i said i use the remote function on my phone to do all i need to control the tv but i am definitely going to upgrade to the 4k version the one thing that surprised me that they went backwards with the remote is that they removed the gyroscope and the accelerometer. Now, if you have games that use those, you are in a sticky situation at the moment because when you turn the remote like a car steering wheel, your car will keep going. You can't turn off the road. But I think some of the principle behind that 
was interestingly they added support for all of the playstation and xbox controllers via bluetooth so now's the time to go and buy a playstation or an xbox controller you have hit a pretty hefty nail on the head there craig in that i'm sure from the uh, figures that they get back that very few people ever use the apple remote as a game controller it worked after a pretty poor function uh, and I certainly never used it for playing games. It just wasn't viable. People who enjoy games of that quality and that caliber will have an Xbox or an, a PlayStation controller, which now the simple plug-in, bang, you're up and running with something you've got all the muscle memory from, all the, all the feel from. Uh, so I think it's, a, again, it's one of the smarter moves by Apple to say, well, look, we can't really compete in this. No one wants to use it as a game controller. They all want to use Xbox. They all want to use uh, PlayStation. So let's let's admit to it and get them fitted up so you can use it on our system. I also thought the one clever thing that they kind of touched on or didn't really demo was the fact that you can colour adjust your TV. I don't know if any of you have had any experience of ever colour adjusting anything, but from a photographer's point of view, please bring out an iPhone app to do that on a Mac. That would be a massive advantage. I am lucky enough to have access to the developer version of it and it amazed me on how much of a difference it made to my tv and it was just so easy to do you literally just hold the iphone's facetime camera up to the front of the television screen and line it up the the little grid that comes up and it literally took two or three seconds and it completely color adjusted my tv and the colors pop more it's like having a new apple tv and i'm on the original 4k version so that comes highly recommended the other thing that was quite nice in digging around in the settings on the new update is there are far more adjustments in the settings so i know martin will like playing with this you can change the frame rates you can set the different settings to the tv i don't know some people might have it set up wrongly and it can align the actual settings to the screen so your subtitles are no longer cut off the one thing i liked the most was something to do with the hdmi socket so it actually adjusts the apple tv based on the quality of the hdmi cable that you're using to make sure it can produce the right frame rate and it actually did mention do you have an expensive hdmi cable that's a really important thing uh you've mentioned there craig that the number of people who use really cheap awful hdmi cables they don't realize how badly they're degrading their signal you know typically for a hdmi cable so if you think you're buying an expensive one at 5.99 you're really not i'm sure people who used to be audiophiles will tell you the same good audio cables made a huge difference to the sound that you're getting from your hi-fi uh, to your speakers. And the same applies to HDMI cables. So if you want a single easiest improvement for your TV screen, get decent uh, HDMI cables. Okay. Do we want to move into the news about podcasting, which should be a major topic as we are on a podcast i did, i'm surprised it's taking you this long craig to bring that up i thought you'd be <laughs> okay we don't like the ipod we like the ipod mini we like the ipod let's talk about podcasts well i, I think this uh, this might be partially uh, partially my fault not from a creator's point of view because this is the first time i've ever been on a podcast but i have been uh, listening to podcasts for a very long time uh, i'm not sure the exact date but i have definitely been listening to podcasts pre-Apple podcasts. I remember the you know, like the very early days when podcasts first uh, became a thing. I always did a lot of radio listening and you know when uh, podcasts start we started to appear and uh, really just suddenly these audio programs that were about all sorts of very niche topics that interested me came about. You know, it was just something that I was immediately interested in. You know, Apple announced that they are now making various podcast uh, subscription options available so podcasters will be able to have uh, their listeners contribute via apple podcasts either and either get uh, you know additional benefits or even i believe it will even be possible to have podcasts that you have to pay to receive that's a you're know, obviously a really big change for apple podcasts started out as one of these very uh, open uh, sort of standards like the kind of old internet standards if you like like email and things where basically there's a specification and as long as you follow the specification you can 
publish your own podcasts and really there's nothing there's no sort of central control as it were from what you saw of the apple event when they announced there's a podcast subscription what was your understanding of what it is or what you can do it's going to be an interesting one isn't it because the first question is who would i be prepared to pay for so i can see me subscribing to someone but then who might be some people that i'd pay for as long as there were no adverts because there are some of them that the adverts clearly pay for the production and I find that very irritating but I'd really need to like someone as a podcaster pay for it you know which makes me a hypocrite because I know you should pay for content that's created however I've not done that for podcasts as such who, who actually who does subscribe who does pay for podcasts I, I don't currently uh, pay for any of the ones that I listen to I do listen to several podcasts that have a uh, you know a Patreon uh, to collect uh, money I would say though that uh, I don't know about you guys I uh, you know I have several podcasts that I've listened to for a very long time and I do think the format is quite sort of personal you know listening to the same people over you know a number of months or years so I think I can see that some podcasters do build up quite a connection with their audience and therefore they may well have people who are you know willing to support them in various ways uh, I've certainly got ones there where I I am considering either possibly through Apple Podcasts, but also maybe through uh, Patreon or something that uh, I might want to uh, support. Alistair, why do you think they did it? Um, I think it's because it's an unsustainable model just relying on advertising. And so Apple wanted to provide an alternative revenue source for the really strong, high in-depth podcasts which are around, which can't be supported either by a newspaper or by a very large media company. Also, we have to consider that it may not just be American-centric. It might be that Apple is trying to encourage podcasts in other languages, in other parts of the world, where they don't get high enough advertising revenue to be supported in that language set. If we consider that Spanish and Arabic are very popular languages in the world, but yet how many of the big American companies would want to have advertising in that particular language set? So it, it could be something as simple as that. The other thing I think is that... Apple have gone back to the subscription model, which has been so successful on iTunes. They realize that if you if you make it as simple as 99 cents or 79 pence, it actually worked out quite a good system for a lot of music systems, and it allowed people to make a living from it. The other possibility, which seems more likely, is that if you start paying for it, you can start putting in huge investment into it. That means not just audio podcasts like ourselves, but you're looking at video podcasting. So we're looking at the likes of the big media companies coming into it. So that's a possibility as well. So you Because if you look at how much Netflix has destroyed the conventional broadcasters market because they've got the money because it's a subscription-based system, if you look at it at what podcasts could do to start developing your own system, and breaking away from the Google-controlled YouTube system of advertising only. It's a possibility, I was thinking. And will Apple get a section? Will they get a percentage of the of the um, subscription? Are we looking at, really, not so much, hey, this is us being kind to you podcasters. Welcome, welcome all. But, hey, this is another income stream for us. I think it's perhaps a bit of all of this. I definitely agree with both of you have said. Perhaps another side to it is that there are a lot of other companies, I think particularly Spotify, who are concentrating greatly on podcasting and trying to get perhaps you know people to use their platform for podcasts. And I wonder if this is partly Apple to attract podcasters and make sure people stay on their platform. They need to provide them with a means of uh, making revenue. And obviously, I think there is definitely an advantage to Apple as well. I think it's perhaps partly that as well. We're, we're moving away from the days of it all being uh, very much uh, uh, the Wild West kind of thing. And, uh, you know, these these big companies trying to consolidate their own platforms. I have a feeling that Apple went down the Apple services route on this one. So I spent numerous hours going through some of the terms and conditions of the new Apple podcast subscription. And it's broken down into three different areas. So you've got free podcasts, as a majority of them are at the moment. You've got, as I describe it, freemium, which allows you to have some free episodes 
and then people subscribe to bonus content or bonus episode or you've got the premium where you pay regardless the interesting thing from a podcaster's point of view is that apple are not interfering with how advertisement is put into those podcasts or subscriptions of episodes the one thing that i liked how they've gone about renaming how you subscribe which i should no longer use that word a podcast you now follow a podcast rather than subscribe. The other clever thing is that I think Apple got wind of all these other providers that were offering premium content that you pay for outside of their environment, so outside of their app. So examples being Patreon as we bought up, Memberful, which is another one that podcasters use, which is actually owned by Patreon, uh, Supercast, or I'm sure some of us have seen Buy Me A Coffee. It just makes far more sense for Apple to manage it all in the one client. The other clever thing that wasn't really brought up is that this only works in the Apple podcasting app. So if you've got an iPhone, you can use it. But if you've been listening to a podcast on Android, you can't activate those functions. You've got to physically have an Apple device. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how podcasters who uh, I suspect many podcasters have uh, listeners over multiple platforms and multiple podcast clients. It will be interesting to see how they do that. I've already heard some podcasters on a podcast that I listen to saying that effectively they will try and offer the same benefits to their members on patreon for example but also through apple podcasts as well so i guess it's uh, there will probably be at least for some of them some quite complicated setting up to try and make everything kind of fair and equitable while still taking advantage of the thing i'm concerned about is if it's a closed system what happens if you want to listen to it on your mac computer okay so you can do it for ig fine but what happens if you're listening to it on your Amazon speaker? Oh, sorry, we can't do that anymore. What happens if you want to listen to it in your BMW car? Oh, sorry, we can't do that because that runs on Android. You know, there's certain things. You're not going to go out and buy an £80,000 new BMW because your podcast is no longer going to be played. There's a couple of sort of areas where I, I, I'm sort of questioning it at times. That's what it does say that it can be played through CarPlay, can't it? So... You should be able, in theory, if you've bought your 85,000 85, BMW scooter, it, it has CarPlay on it, you should be able to uh, listen. If it's proved that the the, the enhanced ability uh, for us to be able to get transcripts, we've we've often discussed here on, on the show about trying to transcript our, our podcast and how expensive that could be, how difficult it could be to get that done effectively. Craig pointed out, um, if you do want to listen in Mexican, Arabic countries, even uh, 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 Cyrillic, if you can get that in your own transcript language, that's a huge, huge plus. The interesting thing from a content creator's point of view is that it kind of makes the entire process easier if you're paying for a podcast. So I pay for four different podcasts that I listen to. And just to set them up is a bit of a nuisance. So first of all, you go out of the Apple app, you have to go online, you set up an account, you then enter your payment details, then you have to download the RSS feed. Does that RSS feed work on the program that you listen to podcasts in? It's just a headache. It's not an easy system for someone that wants to donate three or five pounds to listen to a podcast. By doing it with Apple podcast subscriptions, it's literally a one button click, the same as it is buying an app. I think that's the thought process behind it. Some of the other little hidden features I found was that they are now introducing a podcasting channel. So if you are a content creator that has five or six different podcasts, you can now create a channel within the podcast app to find them all under the one link. So you could effectively be two content creators that team up together and that you pay one subscription to listen to both of those podcasts. That's an interesting move. That's kind of a content creators collaboration feature. And the other one was something that Martin picked up on where you said about transcripts. The other interesting thing is now you can actually geofence where you want your podcast to play. So you can choose which particular countries you want the podcast to play in, which is helpful. And what I liked about that, so one difficult thing from a podcasting point of view is trying to find information in regards to leaving a review in 
the podcast app. So if you're a listener, please leave us a review. You can now view them all in one place. Before you had to literally log into each individual country's iTunes account to find it, which was a pain, to put it politely. To put your mind at rest, uh, Alistair, I've just been looking through some of the terms and conditions of it. And it says here that it'll be available for use of iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, Mac, Apple Watch, Apple TV, HomePod, HomePod Mini, CarPlay, iTunes on Windows, and other smart speakers and car systems. So don't worry, you can go out and buy your Mercedes and it will work, Alistair, no problem. I believe there is an Android app for Apple Music, isn't there? So if um, Apple Podcasts, you know, if this subscription stuff really takes off, wonder if possibly there might end up eventually being a uh, an Android Apple Podcasts app as well, you know, because obviously at that point it would be a source of revenue for Apple and I would imagine there would be pressure from podcasters to uh, have it available to more of their listeners. So I think that's maybe a possibility. It's helpful from a content producer's point of view in terms of having a subscription. You wouldn't have to be dependent on adverts to keep going because I think a lot of listeners would just like to have a podcast without adverts unless it's of particular use to them. So if you're in a technical podcast, that would make sense. But if you're on a weekly news show sponsored by a particular newspaper, in the, like The Guardian used to do chips of everything, they had to stop doing it because it, it wasn't cost effective. Now, if you could get a subscription system going, you could run it just purely for the members of the subscription, which would be nice. So you would have a a good uh, UK-based system. I think also what would be interesting is if you could have a way to sort of say thank you to the people who are the podcasts. So, you know, if the listeners wanted to say thank you, you, you could see a direct relationship on did your listenership really find it interesting or not. Yeah, and I think there, there are certain types of podcasts where they're just, you know, they're just very intensive and require a lot of uh, preparation and creation and if you as a listener want something of that quality that so that people are that effectively mean that they need full-time staff to produce then perhaps you have to be prepared for that sort of thing and you know some types of podcasts you know I listen to a lot of podcasts that are are just kind of enthusiasts uh, talking just because it's something they're interested in they've been doing it for many years without any income getting any income from it at all so clearly that's practical but um yeah, uh, there there are definitely ones where you feel like, yeah, you know, these people are, um, they're effectively doing this as a job and therefore they need income to make that possible. So an easier way to do that, as has already been said, all these current methods which are external and require people to deal with RSS feeds and outside services, there's a huge amount of sort of friction, isn't there, of getting somebody to subscribe when all that is required when if it's down to the case of just effectively clicking a button in Apple Podcasts, I would imagine that's going to get a lot of these creators much more, many more subscribers than they would have through these other external methods. Yeah, it definitely comes down to the ease of use in terms of doing that, for sure. I think the wonderful thing about podcasts and the fact that it was has, has always been so open is that anybody can start one. There's nothing to stop you starting and trying to find an audience. And you can make a podcast even about the most esoteric topic that you're probably only ever going to have a, a handful of listeners. And I, I hope that the big companies getting involved and taking more control doesn't stop that and they keep it and they keep it very, very open. But uh, I don't think there's any sign uh, at the moment that there's any moves not to allow just people just publish what they want so i hope that remains the case did you find out craig at all if you can do three unlimited trials at all from reading the terms and conditions it looks like you can do the same as you would with an app in the app store in that you get a seven day free trial i don't know about you but i think so many apps have gone over to a subscription-based model now it's crazy i'm pleased that they just didn't do the route of podcast plus and that it's a subscription base 
I'm glad they've gone down this route because Amazon Prime podcasts, where it's unique subscription, you pay a monthly fee, but you might not necessarily want to listen to those. So this gives you an opportunity to pick and choose. It's more like a menu service. Apparently, didn't they say in the keynote that it's going down on the second year that they're releasing it? The, the subscription which they're taking out of it drops. So the first year, they're going to take 30%. Second year, they're going to take 15%. It does, yeah, which is a good sign. Who knows? In years to come, we could be suing Apple saying that their 15% is taking too much of our subscription. How dare they? Well, it's not taking it's not taking your subscription, is it? It's taking it from the creator. You don't pay anything. I think that's a good point. In terms of third parties, as a content creator, you get hit twice. So you get hit from the provider of the not... I don't want to single out a company here, but example being patreon patreon take a percentage and then you also lose a percentage on the transaction fee so you get hit with a double whammy i don't think apple are doing that it's just the 30 or 15 percent cut which makes sense martin i shall hand over to you it is the did you know section uh, this week's did you know for me was did you know that you can use your watch to control your camera on your iPhone? You can set the camera up remotely, stand away from it, but you have a shutter control for the camera on your phone. So if you are in a position where you you know you want to set a camera up high to take high level shots or something which is not easily accessible and you could even see the picture on your phone that the camera will take so you can set it and prime it and then move away and then take the picture you've, you've used your phone as a, a, a remote shutter lock which i thought was uh, quite useful the tip i've got is um when you're in a uh, uh, an image editor or in a lot of other situations where you can make a uh, rectangular selection i think certainly this seems to happen to me quite a lot you start dragging out your rectangular selection and you realize you didn't get the top left hand corner in quite the right place or it's not you know not quite lined up properly you don't have to abandon your selection and start again to try and get that corner correctly if you hold down the uh, space bar then find that you're the you stop enlarging the selection and you can move the whole rectangle that you've selected around on the screen to get that uh, top left hand corner in just the right place and then when you let go of the space bar you can start expanding the selection again i saw this i think somebody sent me forwarded on the tweet uh, that mentioned this and i'd been you know using image editors and things for many years and did not know that this was a that this was a feature so yeah i've, I've found that uh, very handy well no i'm ashamed about this i'm telling you this now but i hadn't realized how easy it was to change the ringtone so that you can have a custom ringtone for anyone that you like so you go to the contacts and you find that and do edit and then you can scroll down and it says ringtone so if you want um you can have a different ringtone for lots of different people you know which is giving me hours of endless amusement i have to say to pick suitable songs and god knows there are a lot of ringtones out there for for different people and that's really good fun i was going to struggle with this did you know because i've been trying three different things at the moment and I think one might be relevant in iOS or iPadOS 14.5. There is some more privacy settings and you can actually hide your device ID or your device identity when listening to a podcast. If you go into settings and podcasts and you scroll to the very bottom there's a new section that now says podcasts and privacy and reset your identifier so you can actually reset your device to a randomized id that apple generate so it's no longer identifiable as a ipad or a home pod it's just hidden away which is quite a clever one yeah that's interesting because you're because when you're downloading a podcast even though it's through apple Podcasts, you're still downloading it aren't you from the podcaster's server so i guess that's to stop uh, that, that that request from leaking data about you i also get the feeling it covers under the podcast subscriptions in the if you used a third party to pay for a subscription you're giving away your name your email address they can send you marketing by doing it through apple you're no longer going to get any of that that's for you to choose yeah that's definitely a benefit of going through through apple isn't it yeah 
Um, I'm not sure if people know this one, but how many times have you been asked to submit a signature and what you end up having to do is print out the piece of paper, sign it and then scan it back in and put it into your computer? Did you know that Apple have had a feature built into the computers, the operating systems for about maybe 10 years, whereby if you go open up preview and your PDF is in that preview, if you if you click on the little circle with like the felt tip in it, that's called markup. If you look along there there's what looks like a sort of J and a sort of squiggle and there's like a triangle or arrowhead as Apple insists on calling it. If you click on it it says create signature and you think well what do you mean by create signature? So what you do is you write your signature on a piece of paper and hold it up to the webcam and it takes a picture it reads the signature from what you're holding up to the webcam and stores it on your computer and now you can put that signature on anything. I can actually add to this which you may or may not know is that if you have got an iPhone nearby, you can actually draw your signature with your finger on the iPad or iPhone screen and it will copy and paste it into the document. So you've got an electronic copy of that, which is always helpful. Sadly, we've come to the end of our show for this week and we'll firstly say thank you to Martin once again. Thank you very much for being with us. No, it's a pleasure. I really enjoy our little chats and discussions and uh, uh, always hopefully hear from our listeners. And we'll also say thank you to Alistair this evening. It's been great being here. I looked forward to having a discussion about Apple's new tech. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you to Tina. It's been a great evening. I think my only problem really now is is finding a job, giving up being retired because there's so much kit that I want to buy. We'll also say thank you very, very much for joining us for his first podcast ever. And we'll say thank you to Robert. Yes, well, thanks very much for having me on. And as I said, after being a uh, podcast listener for so many years, it's been uh, been great fun to actually be on a podcast. So um, I'm looking forward to, uh, maybe not looking forward, but I will listen to myself back and uh, be better. That will be an interesting experience, I'm sure. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you. And as always, it's thank you very much for listening and for being part of our show. You can always get in contact with us via different social medias found in the show notes, as well as our website, which is www.lmug.org.uk. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.